Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is not either Jay or Trey, but a new special guest co-host, political scientist Will Miller. The reason Will is here today is that we're hoping to bring in one or two occasional guest co-hosts. Now, our core group will still remain me, Jay, and Trey, but we thought it would be good to occasionally have one or two other voices on the show. Now, regular listeners know that law professor Ken Katkin occasionally co-hosts and sort of represents the left when I'm not on, and the idea here is to have someone like Will to do the same thing, only representing the right. And we're also looking into bringing in a non-guy politics guy as well at some point in the near future for some gender diversity. So let us know what you think about Will, whether it's positive, negative, or mixed. You know, we do this show for you, and we want to make sure that we feature hosts that are giving you the sort of balanced, thoughtful, and well-informed commentary that you have a right to expect from the politics guys. You can let us know what you think about Will by either emailing us at mail at politicsguys.com, commenting on the episode at our politicsguys.com website, or by commenting on the new show post for this show on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. One more thing before we get started. There's a new feature on the website, politicsguys.com. I've broken out all of our interviews under a separate category tag, so you can see all 62 and counting of them in one spot. And we've been talking for people for several years now, and I think most of the interviews hold up really well. So to check it out and see what you might have missed, you can go to politicsguys.com slash interviews or click on the Politics Guys interviews link in the main menu on politicsguys.com. And now on to this week's show. Will Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. I'm excited to, uh, to talk about some of the big issues from the week with you. Yeah, me too. You know, before we get to our top story this week, I've got an update for listeners. Uh, as people who are regular listeners to the show may know, we've been talking a lot about Facebook in recent weeks. And in our discussion of Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's testimony on Capitol Hill, I suggested that his apology and promises to do better didn't mean very much. But what could possibly matter was the new European Union privacy regulations, which go into effect on May 25th. Now, during the testimony, Zuckerberg gave a sort of semi-promise that U.S. users would be covered under these new stricter regulations. But my sense of things was that he very intentionally gave himself an out. And this week, it looks like Facebook took that out by quietly altering its terms of service so that the new EU rules won't apply to anyone outside of the European Union. And uh, I'm, I'm disappointed, of course, but I am hardly surprised at this development. So more on this as, uh, as uh, news develops on that. But anyway, I just wanted to let people know about that. Okay, uh, a late-breaking story that we won't go into detail on this week is the lawsuit that the Democratic National Committee filed against the Russian government, the Trump campaign, and WikiLeaks for conspiring to throw the election to Donald Trump. The DNC's filing doesn't contain any truly new information, and my sense of things is that there's really not a whole lot here now, I still believe that if anything huge, as in presidency trot toppling, is going to come out of this story of Russian involvement in the 2016 election, I think it's going to be as a result of the Mueller investigation and not a lawsuit or not the Senate's probe, which is still going on. 
But depending on how this story develops, we may end up revisiting it, especially when we have either Jay or Ken on the show to offer their views as attorneys. Will, any, any thoughts on the lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what you just said makes makes good sense. I mean, Democrats themselves are even sort of saying that there's there's not really any new evidence in here. There's nothing that's going to be the, the smoking gun that brings down the Trump presidency in this lawsuit. I mean, it really just seems like an opportunity that they saw with the clock sort of running out on the opportunity to file that ultimately is just a way to put everything they've kind of been talking about in various pieces uh, into one sort of single narrative that the public can can get easy access to. For me, I mean, I'd almost say it's a fundraising stunt at this point. But again, we'll see what what happens with a, a Clinton appointee hearing the case. Yeah, absolutely. All right, on to our main top story for this week. Uh, we learned that CIA Director and Secretary of State nominee Mike Pompeo met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un over Easter weekend in talks that are preliminary to President Trump's meeting with Kim. And those talks are planned for sometime in May or maybe we're hearing early June now. Now, President Trump is hopeful that progress can be made, though he vowed this week to walk out or not even go in the first place if he begins to think otherwise. Multiple reports have suggested that Kim is actually willing to consider denuclearization, and he's announced that he's suspended nuclear weapons testing, which certainly it's a move in the right direction. Now, it's also been reported that they're willing to bend, the North is, on their former insistence that all U.S. forces be removed from South Korea. But my sense of things is that the North won't actually abandon their nuclear weapons program unless there's a very substantial U.S. withdrawal, which is something I don't see happening because the U.S. is actually working to bolster its presence in South Korea. They're in the final stage of this massive expansion of their main base in South Korea, which is Fort Humphreys. It's this like 3,500 acre complex. Eventually it's supposed to house around 45,000 personnel, that's military and civilian. This is a huge project, uh, just shy of $11 billion, though 93% of it's going to be paid for by South Korea, actually. So, Will, what do you think is the most plausible uh, scenario for what comes out of these talks, and uh, how optimistic are you? It's really a great question, and you know, as you read both Democrats and Republicans alike sort of responding, especially in the Senate where Pompeo is still facing you know, what's obviously going to be a, a pretty difficult nomination battle, um, it was interesting to see kind of the various responses. Um, and I really do believe to a degree that what you're seeing from the North Koreans is an honest effort. Um, but even with the the statements that came out from Kim Jong-un this week, the question really comes down to me, uh, you know, is he pausing or is he canceling? Is this the, the voice? Is this the sound? Is this the way somebody's speaking that um, is doing this as a concession? Or is this somebody who is basically saying, we already have what we need in terms of nukes and missiles, so we don't need to test anymore, or is that a spin we're doing domestically? Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens, and obviously when you have two very, very strong personalities like we have in, in North Korea and with Trump today, I mean, obviously I think the talks could be either very dynamic, very fiery, we're not really sure what that dynamic will look like, and that's what made the timing of Pompeo's visit, I think, even all the more interesting, um, especially with him not telling 
anybody, including, you know, obviously we have some Democratic senators who aren't thrilled that they weren't at least, you know, sort of notified that this was on the horizon, even if it was secretly um, during the the nomination discussions. You know, it it is so difficult to know what's really going on in North Korea and and what uh, Kim is thinking, obviously. But in this whole situation, there are at least, there are maybe two things that I think I know for relatively certain. Those two things are, number one, that North Korea is not going to give up all of its nuclear weapons. I just do not see that on the table. I've said that before on the show. I think Kim has seen what happened, you know, in the case of Libya, when a country agrees to give up its weapons and, you know, Gaddafi ended up, well, dead. Uh, I don't see that happening. And I also don't see the U.S. withdrawing its forces from South Korea. Maybe they'll, there might be, I could see some sort of minor drawdown, but I just do not see us, you know, essentially abandoning South Korea. And given those two things that I'm fairly certain will not happen or we, we will not move on, I don't know that there's a whole lot of, you know, room to make any kind of major change, which is not to say that I don't think things can't be, the situation can't be improved, but this to me seems to be like the sort of situation that if it does improve at all, improves over the course of years and not by, say, you know, the end of the year or anything like that. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be a meeting where they're going to walk out, you know, at the end of this meeting in late May, early June, and we're going to have all of these problems addressed, obviously. But I do think dynamically it's a a new opportunity for at least some conversations to happen. Um, And what's really been interesting for me this week, like I said, is watching, you know, Senate Democrats respond to Pompeo's revelation that this trip sort of happened. And it really takes me back to thinking about, you know, Nixon's initial trip to China Mm -hmm. uh, and in a social media area. Era, what would the backlash have been on Nixon if this had sort of popped out ahead of time? Um, really just looking at how we've seen very divergent responses to, to leaders who are attempting to initiate conversations with countries that conversations at the time hadn't really been fruitful or even ongoing. Yeah. And, and of course, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with that, Nixon was able to normalize relations with China in part the argument is because he was so strongly anti-communist, it wasn't seen as squishy as it would have been if, say, someone else had done that. And the same logic, some would argue, applies to Donald Trump, who certainly has been unsparing in his criticism of the North. And you know, there are some people, believe it or not, uh, this is like the wildly optimistic scenario that I've been hearing from some Trump supporters: is that Donald Trump believes that this is his way to make his significant mark on history to solve a problem that multiple presidents of both parties have failed to solve. And there be there have actually been some people saying, you know, there's a, maybe a Nobel Peace Prize on the horizon. So, uh, and that sort of thing. And now that sounds wildly optimistic to me, but this is how some Trump supporters, some people in Trump land are actually thinking about this right now. Yeah. And again, I mean, I can see that. I mean, as a, as a legacy stance, in the grand scheme of things, I, I think there is the potential for that. And again, I, I do draw parallels here between what Trump has done with Pompeo and what Nixon did with uh, China and getting there through Pakistan and all of the logistics that went in there. Um, but again, this it takes a willing partner. And I think that's the question and the, the points you're raising about, you know, what are the North Koreans going to be willing to do 
if the U.S. doesn't agree to remove all troops, if the U.S. isn't looking to, to meet some of, of their wants, needs, demands, whatever they end up being in that conversation. And I'm not sure that, that Kim obviously is in the same place as the Chinese were when Nixon visited yeah. for that. I don't think we can predict that nearly as well. So for Trump supporters that think this is going to be a, a two-day summit and then the North Koreans are going to come out bowing and thanking Trump for helping set them straight, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be our, our result immediately. But like you said, two years down the road, I'm not sure that might not be what is happening. Yeah. And we should also point out that North Korea has a history of going back on its word and not being open to verification and that sort of thing, much more so than almost any other country that the U.S. has dealt with. And so that's that's a, a big part of this as well. An agreement could be reached, but then there almost I think almost certainly will be issues with verification and cheating and that sort of thing that we should we should essentially expect that. W- would you agree? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I do think that's an area where. Um, you know, the North Koreans obviously don't have a track record here of even allowing inspectors in, obviously, without normalized relations. It also adds another layer of difficulty um, because, again, it's not just us where we're seeing those those types of um, negative concerns coming from. Um, so, again, I think it's going to be a, a matter of what is our expectation. And it's also going to be a question of Trump here in terms of, you know, it, it can be said that Trump hasn't necessarily struck the tone as somebody who's going to care about the reality of the aftermath as long as he can get the quote that says that North Korea has agreed to do this. I'm not sure if he's going to care about the the post follow up piece. Um, you know, it might be I'm working for the tweet where it says I brought peace between North Korea and the United States and anything that happens six years from now, yeah. we'll worry about six years from now. Yeah. And there are some people who are concerned that he might be willing to give away too much in order to be able to make that tweet, essentially. And so that, you know, that's not an unreasonable concern, I would think. But but again, I, you know, it, certainly when I think about North Korea, I focus on all the negatives. But I would say one positive coming out of this, even if nothing substantive happens, assuming that President Trump doesn't make things worse, which is certainly not inconceivable, the very fact that we're moving in the direction of opening up relations. I mean, Kim is now talking to, you know, he's gone to China. He's has this meeting next week with South Korea. This is a good thing. And I think that everyone should be, you know, acknowledging that, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen over the past few administrations, um, failing to directly interact with the North Koreans obviously hasn't led to the results we wanted. Um, so seeing Trump be willing to do that obviously um, is a is a positive step forward. I think the other interesting dynamic here, obviously, when it comes to Trump and the North Koreans, is that um, Tillerson was largely mocked for suggesting we do this, and now that it's Pompeo and he's there, that Trump is fully supportive and looking to meet directly. So I mean, we have seen shifts even within Trump's view on it. Um, but, you know, anything that's going to get us at the table, even if we're going to the table to find out that we're not going to see eye to eye and this problem's going to last, at least we know at that point through direct interaction as opposed to intermediaries beating around the bush, media, all of those pieces that have really dominated the last few administrations approach to North Korea. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to another part of the world. Uh, for a little while earlier this week, it looked like the United States might be imposing additional economic sanctions on Russia as, as punishment for that country's military assistance to Syrian President Assad, or as President Trump calls him, Animal Assad. Uh, now, these sanctions were supposed to target Russian companies providing equipment used in Assad's recent chemical attacks, and they were announced by uh, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who, in the absence of a secretary, of state has sort of become the de facto top 
uh, diplomat, I guess you could say. But those sanctions never happened. The White House announced that Haley had uh, misspoken and officials suggested that sanctions, while being considered, they decided not to do them. And Haley essentially got out ahead of things, which struck some people as very odd, given that Haley has a reputation for being one of the much, I'd say one of the most cautious Trump administration officials when it comes to making public announcements of policy of this sort. Uh, what do you make of this, Will? I think it really brings in an interesting dynamic in terms of where Nikki Haley stands with the administration today. Um, as you mentioned, she's seen as cautious. She's also seen as, um, you know, especially as you mentioned, without a secretary of state as being kind of the voice on foreign policy right now. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting that all of this breaks around the same time that obviously John Bolton's getting settled in. But the idea that, you know, Haley is accused of having that moment of momentary confusion and then immediately comes back with, I'm not confused. I, I went forward with what I had been briefed on and hadn't been told that the course has changed, opens up all kinds of questions in terms of why is policy changing without somebody in Haley's position being involved in the discussion to even know that it was a possibility. I think it opens up questions about, um, you know, obviously there's whisperings and we hear rumors coming out about, you know, the potential for Haley and Pence to team up at some point, whether it's in 2020 or in the future. Um, and, you know, I, I just I wonder if this is the beginning of Haley falling out of, of grace and finding herself on the next infographic as the latest Trump administrator to to work her way out of the White House. And in this case, you know, it's it's hard because she's coming across is very competent. I mean, it, the response from her did not strike me as somebody who was attempting to politically throw an administration under the bus. She seemed that what she said on Face the Nation last week was what she believed to be true at that moment. Yeah. You know, my sense of it is this is one in a, a long string of uh, examples of poor message discipline and coordination on the part of the administration. And my sense is like in so many of these things, I, my guess is that it comes right from the president. You know, uh, Nikki Haley uh, reportedly speaks to President Trump directly quite a lot. And I think it could be just another case of President Trump saying one thing to one person, then someone else comes in the room an hour or a day later, and he makes a different decision because it seems to me that much more so than any president that I can recall in my lifetime, certainly, that he is – he has – very few firm policy stances outside of, I would say, immigration and uh, trade. And he's very susceptible to changing his mind based on who the last person he talks to is and isn't very good about letting people know that he's changed his mind, which has John Kelly, you know, report chief of staff reportedly pulling out his hair, understandably so. Yeah, I mean, it has to be something that drives the internal staff crazy. Um, but I would think at this point that even in that case, Haley would not be going public if she didn't have reason to believe that that was the end point. Because, um, again, I think for somebody who's been around for the entire administration so far largely, I mean, she's probably fairly aware that that's a, a reality that she has to face and be concerned with. Um, so and I do think that part was interesting. I think part of it, too, comes back to, to why Trump ultimately chose to not move forward with the sanctions. And obviously, there's all sorts of theories out there. Is it the Russian ties? Is it fondness to Putin? Is it thinking that the sanctions wouldn't work? Is it the being angry at the Europeans, being mad that we exiled 60 or you know pulled out 60 diplomats when the French and the Germans didn't really match us there and kind of left us looking like the lone wolf? You know, what was that tipping point moment? And to your point... I think 
legitimately, Trump may have different explanations for that based on the person that we're talking to. Um, but leaving, obviously, your, your UN ambassador out to kind of dry at this point hurts her reputation, it hurts us with the UN, and it really does bring questions of legitimacy. I mean, if I'm in the UN from another nation and Nikki Haley comes up to me next week and suggests something, I'm going to wonder if it's actually something that's coming true or if it's something that Nikki Haley's doing that Donald Trump's going to back out on later. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What do you think about it as a strategy, I mean, as a move, actually? I mean, you know, the administration has said that sanctions are still on the table in the event of future attacks. And the logic here seems to be that by not imposing them, but threatening to impose them, that would perhaps decrease the likelihood of a future attack much more than just slapping sanctions on right now. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that's a wise move? I think it's an interesting approach. I'm, I mean, I am a fan of economic sanctions. Um, I do think that even if they're being used as lip service, it still at least pushes an image that we're taking something seriously. I do think that the, the Trump approach right now is triangulating a little bit um, in terms of, obviously, if we're talking about airstrikes against Syria, we're talking about warning the Russians about sanctions coming if they use future, if there are future attacks that we can show that they're somehow involved in, we're at least covering all of the potential bases. Um, but again, at the end of the day, my question is with the sanctions that were kind of being talked about and proposed is, you know, would the Russian response sort of be a, a ho-hum, that's nice, or would there have actually been uh, enough teeth in what would have come out from the Trump administration to, to really make a, a meaningful dent in the Russian interactions with the Assad regime? And again, that's it's hard to tell because, again, we've got so many different smoke signals coming out about what those would have looked like and what they would have meant that we don't know at the end of the day what was what was the final plan that Nikki Haley was referring to when she talked. Yeah. Uh, My sense of things with Russia's involvement is that they are in so deep in in Syria with Assad that we would have to impose a significant amount of pain, I think much more than we're willing to do on Russia for them to reconsider their stance, especially in that doing that in, in Russia pulling out in any significant way would be a huge sign of weakness. And just like how President Trump hates to show weakness, I would say that President Putin hates to show it even more. And he maybe has good reason to being uh, a, a no questions about it authoritarian leader. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that would be kind of the the ultimate end of this is figuring out what Putin's willing to do in the public face, which I don't, to your point, I don't think Putin would be willing to pull out at all. And I really think the concern for me thinking a year or two down the road is ultimately we're going to end up in a situation where we will have to publicly to the world sort of say, this is how much we actually care about what Assad is doing Um, in terms of, are we willing to risk major problems with Russia, which is more directly related to us than are we willing to, to worry about what Assad might be doing to his own people. And that's, again, that's a, a moral discussion that just no matter where it ends up, it doesn't put us in a good light as we make a decision there. Because we either end up with the Russians upset or we end up kind of being seen as brushing Syria under the rug because we're not willing to, to go that route with Russia. Yeah. And I just don't think that we're going to have the will to do that no matter what Syria does or no matter what Assad does, though it seems like he's more or less achieved his objectives uh, and is, you know, in much more control of the country than he's been for for quite a while, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, so before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. First is Brian, our latest monthly sustaining supporter on Patreon. Uh, Brian tweeted, I'm a small but proud supporter now, and I responded to that. There's no such thing as a small supporter because, hey, anyone who willingly helps us out when they could get the show for free, well, you're awesome in our book. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Also, we received a message from another recent Patreon supporter, Nick, who wrote, As a fairly new patron but listener for the last year or so, I really appreciate what you all have created. I followed politics since middle school, but in recent years have been turned away in large part by the trend toward demonizing from all sides. I appreciate your good faith approach to discussions that address and sometimes combat ideas without losing appreciation for the humanity of those who hold them. Keep up the great work. You set a great example for how to disagree and discuss difficult issues. Thanks, Nick. That that, that means a lot. Uh, and next we have uh, Sin, who recently tripled her monthly Patreon pledge to the show. Now, that's a big deal. And I wanted to, to give, her, uh, give you a special thanks for that, Sin. Thank you so much. That's awesome of you. And finally, thanks to Zachary. Uh, I'm not sure if you go by Zach. Most Zacharys I know go by Zach, but I'll play it safe and stick with Zachary, uh, who made a pledge of support for the show on PayPal. Thank you very much. And of course, when you make a pledge of financial support to the show, we would love to include a message from you in your shout out. If there's anything that you want us to pass along, you can include your message in both Patreon and PayPal, or you can just send us your message at mail at politicsguys.com. And as you know, listener support, that's what keeps us going. So if you'd like to join Brian, Nick, Sin, Zachary, and all of our other great Politics Guys supporters, just go to politicsguys.com support. Thanks so much. All right, moving on. This week, the Supreme Court invalidated a key provision of a law used to deport legal non-citizen immigrants living in the United States. It was a 5-4 decision with Trump-appointed Justice Neil Gorsuch siding with the court's four liberals. Now, in the decision, which was written by Justice Kagan, the court ruled that the law, which allows for detention and deportation of any immigrant convicted of an aggravated felony, this includes any felony crime of violence that by its nature involves a substantial risk of physical force against the person or property, that that was unconstitutionally vague. And as such, it's a violation of the Constitution's due process clause. Now, this did not invalidate the entire law, only that part that allows for deportation based on this so-called residual clause, which is designed to include offenses that aren't specifically mentioned elsewhere in the statute. Now, in his defense, uh, sorry, in his defense, in his dissent, Justice Thomas argued that the framers' concept of due process does not prohibit vague laws. Gorsuch disagreed and wrote, a government of laws and not of men can never tolerate that arbitrary power. And in my judgment, that foundational principle dictates today's result. Now, President Trump, who's certainly never been one to shy away from calling out judges whose decision he dissents from, took a much more surprisingly diplomatic approach. He tweeted about the need for Congress to change the law rather than suggesting that Gorsuch made a bad decision. What's your take on this, Will? I think it's interesting. I think Merrick Garland's getting a laugh somewhere about how this part turned out. But um, 
for me, the the big thing here is it's being framed as Gorsuch versus Trump, and I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think this was a political decision. I don't think this was a political case. I think this was a very technocratic interpretive case. And in all honesty, I think it would have been difficult for Trump to really go after Gorsuch in a way that we might expect from him typically. Because if we go back to Johnson versus the U.S., which is what Kagan based much of this decision on, that was an 8-1 majority decision with Scalia writing um, the majority opinion following following much the same piece about, you know, some of the vagities in these um, substantial risk type of cases. Um, so in all honesty, the more surprising piece for me was things like Thomas actually switching and saying that the framers' idea of due process in the Fifth Amendment was very different from what we're interpreting it as today. Because in the Johnson case, he wasn't saying that. Samuel Alito is really the only one who's been consistent between um, – these two similar cases. More surprising, like you pointed out, is that Trump pointed back to now it's up to Republicans in Congress to fix these loopholes. Um, because again, I mean, ironically, in this case, it started with the Obama administration actually ordering the deportation and then the Ninth District ultimately putting a stop to it. Um, so it's not a, a Republican issue necessarily. Um, so a lot of the media framing of Gorsuch has acted against Trump. I really think this is a case where it was um, more a question of immigration law versus criminal law and the impacts that each of those have on policy outputs. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in in a way, Gorsuch is very much like the justice he replaced Scalia on this because Justice Scalia hated vague and poorly worded laws and, and you know, lost no opportunity to mock them uh, whenever he could, certainly. And this is, I think, you know, just another example of this sort of thing. So, so I agree this has been made out to be more political than what it really is. It's just a simply, a, you know, a overly broad clause. And this could, you know, this could easily apply in non-immigration cases as well, certainly. And, and to me, again, as you mentioned, the surprising thing maybe is more that four of the five courts, uh, sorry, four of the five conservatives on the court didn't see it that way and don't have seemingly as much of a problem with Congress exercising authority through such vague legislation. Yeah, and I think that's the the interesting part is, and again, it, we we have a pretty recent case that suggests that there has been a shift in that discussion, um, or at least in that thought process, because, like I said, with the Demaya case as compared to to the Johnson case, they're they're strikingly similar. Um, now, again, from a policy standpoint, do I think that two home burglaries should be enough for somebody to be deported back? It's it's really neither here nor there in a case like this with the way that it was framed and viewed. Um, but for Trump to not come out on the offensive against Gorsuch, which I, would, which I was honestly expecting. I think even the most ardent Trump supporter was probably expecting, if not doing that on behalf of Trump, uh, and then didn't see Trump do the same thing. That had to be kind of eye-opening. Um, there's actually some restraint in this case, and I'm not really sure uh, where that's coming from. Um, but for, for Gorsuch, I mean, like you said, I, it sounds just like Scalia to some degree. Um, and even to some extent, the fact that he chose to write um, a concurring opinion on it shows that you know he wants to be clear that he is still a conservative justice but like you know the person that he has replaced he takes the same view uh, and these vague laws are not going to work and he's going to want to see Congress tighten up the conversation as well yeah I, I think in terms of the president's response or non-response to this it probably I would expect it's because 
he is a Trump appointee and a fairly recent, obviously, Trump appointee and certainly a, a kind of the heads on type of critique that he that President Trump has given concerning other federal judges would make him look bad, uh, you know, in, in kind of reflection of that. So I think that might have played a role in it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, for me, I think what would have been really fun on this case is I am sure that as they were conferencing at the court about this and it gets to Gorsuch as the last to speak at 4-4, that Kagan's probably assuming that this is dead in the water. And then he turns around and says he's going that route. That had to be a... One of the one of the shocking moments of the the term for the Supreme Court for sure. But again, I'm sure for Gorsuch, this wasn't a fun decision because of those exact reasons. Where you're sitting there thinking, I'm freshly appointed with a president who calls people out every day for far less than this. Um, what is this going to mean for for me in the immediate future? Even as a Supreme Court justice, where I'm protected, it doesn't mean that the media is not going to turn on me, and a few million Trump supporters aren't going to do the same. Right, and we should point out that that actually could have played out exactly like like you mentioned it will, because the the Supreme while they're while the Supreme Court's deliberations are not publicly available, the tradition is when they're discussing cases to go from the most senior to the least senior justices. So presumably Gorsuch was the last one to speak on that. And that could be a kind of a real made for TV sort of moment, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Like that's one where I just pictured Jaws sort of dropping oh, yeah. in terms of, well, we didn't see this coming. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the Senate, uh, moving on, the Senate this week voted to kill not a regulation, but something called a guidance, a guidance issued by my favorite government agency, regular listeners will know, that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, it was a 51 to 47 vote with only Democrat Joe Manchin joining Republicans. And this invalidates the guidance in which the CFPB warned auto dealers that they should avoid the practice of marking up finance company interest rates as it could trigger enforcement action under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And this is due to multiple studies that have found racial discrimination in finance rate markup practices. Now, the House has passed similar legislation in the past. It's assumed it will. The House will go along with the Senate on this. And this provision used to invalidate the CFPB guidance is the Congressional Review Act. And this lets Congress not only kill agency regulations within 60 legislative days of their issue, but also then prohibits the agency from issuing any similar regulation in the future without congressional approval. So you might wonder... How could Congress use the Congressional Review Act to invalidate something, well, that was done way back in the Obama administration, because this was an Obama administration CFPB guidance. It's been a lot more than 60 legislative days. And here's here's where the, um, I guess you could say either cleverness or sneakiness, depending on how you stand on this, of congressional Republicans comes into play. uh, Previous to this, only actual regulations were subject to the CRA. Republicans asked the Government Accountability Office to classify agency guidance as also subject to the CRA, which the GAO did. And this 60-day timetable only starts after a rule is formally submitted to Congress. And since agency guidance wasn't considered to be subject to the CRA until now, that clock never started until the GAO ruled that guidance counted as regulation. And of course, Republicans in Congress have been big fans of the Congressional Review Act, which they have used now to overturn well over a dozen Obama-era rules. And last year, 
uh, two Democrats, Cory Booker and Tom Udall, introduced legislation to repeal the CRA. But as you would expect in a Republican Congress, it went nowhere, especially given that most Republicans, you know, aside from the military, they aren't typically that fond of government agencies or their regulations. So this is a potentially big deal, not just because it might make it easier for auto dealers to discriminate, but because it could potentially open the door for Republicans to invalidate a bunch of other Obama-era regulatory guidance, dating back potentially years. Now, whether or not you think that's a good or bad thing obviously depends on how you feel about regulatory agencies. And, and this is the sort of, the reason we're talking about, this is the sort of kind of under the radar type of thing that in a week of James Comey and other stuff, which we'll get to in a minute, doesn't get, I don't think, as much attention as it should and has can have very significant real world effects on millions of Americans. Uh, so with that, what do you think about all this, Will? I will say that I'm in the the camp of this being clever. Um, <laughs> yeah, and again, I, so. I think, yeah, and again with the GAO um, looking into this, I mean, I think it's important to note that this was sort of a, a reemergence of some Tea Party figures and some Tea Party beliefs. I mean, Pat Toomey and Jerry Moran are the two that kind of point out and say, let's go back and look at this and see what we can do. Uh, and the other part that I'd say is extremely clever and important to note with the CRA is it can't be filibustered. Right. So we Good point. Simple majority is what it takes, um, which allows Republicans to do a lot of this very quickly. And to your point, I mean, I'm not sure that even the conversation this week really needs to be about, you know, auto lending discrimination. I think it's the bigger question of what doors does this now open? What other guidances were offered that could now possibly be be turned back? For Trump, obviously, he's going to view this as a win. Um, anything he can do to to take away what Rich Cordray did under Obama for a while there, I think is going to be something that he will, will flaunt and mention regularly. Um, but for me, I mean, it really is. It's it's added layers of bureaucracy. It's attempts by individuals to use kind of the technocratic frames of government to avoid congressional scrutiny, which, again, I will say there are times, um, even as anti-regulation as I am, that we do need regulation in place. And it's something that we don't always want to be politicized. Um, but obviously, as we're looking at kind of the new era here now that, you know, even things that were issued as guidance, not formal rules can now all of a sudden go under the CRA. I think it's be very interesting to see how that gets used as a political tool moving forward. Obviously, I mean, Joe Manchin changes, but um, we have plenty of people in this country who would still say Joe Manchin's a Republican and yeah. everything he believes, a Democrat in name. Um, but, you know, those 5147s, you know, even without Duckworth and McCain, that's still obviously going to pass. So the next question for me is going to be, what do we see start to percolate in terms of the the next steps in the regulatory waters? Because, again, for me, the, the auto lending discrimination was kind of a, a benign place to begin with. This. So it wasn't an issue that I think there were, you know, hotly contested interest groups on both sides kind of fighting for, um, if anything, I think the auto manufacturers obviously are, are thrilled with this. But the question now is, what's the next piece that gets looked at and does it become um, maybe more mainstream, maybe more big picture? Because at this point now, the the process has been established. Yeah, I think that that's very important. Also, we would, if anything more happens with this, we would expect to see it happen within the next, well, within the coming months, because, you know, there are Republicans, especially on the House side, are very concerned and rightfully so about 
possibly losing their majority. And of course, to overturn agency regulations under the CRA takes a majority of both the House and the Senate. So if there, if something's going to happen with this, it's going to happen fairly quickly, I would expect. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, now that the Again, the process is there. I think you'll start to see things move quick for that exact reason, that that way between April and November, obviously, we know there's majorities in both and they can largely pull back whatever they choose. And again, I think the question, too, will be, you know, with the CFPB, how much of this comes back on them? Um, Obviously not a popular agency with a lot of Republicans. Um, So, you know, what are some of the decisions, some of the guidances issued there uh, that ultimately end up being pulled back by the CRA. And again, to your point, that ability to not just pull back, but then to also really put a process in place moving forward that's going to require a majority or more in the House and Senate to bring it back to life. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you this. You know, uh, some people, some listeners might be thinking, wait a second. So it requires a majority in the House and the Senate for the CF for Congress essentially to overturn uh, an executive branch agency action. It doesn't I didn't I didn't specifically mention this. It doesn't require the signature of the president. Now, some people might hear that and say, well, wait a second. Isn't that uh, an unconstitutional legislative veto? And how how is the CRA okay anyway? And there are some people who would argue that it's actually not. What's your take on that, Will? It really is an interesting piece, and it's one that I've actually thought a lot about the last few weeks as we've seen this sort of coming. Um, but the the concern that I have um, from a again from a more technical standpoint is obviously if it allows for um, the presidential veto largely um, off of that, then at that point, you're actually enforcing a supermajority in terms of having the opportunity to overturn that. So it's really a question of the spirit of the CRA versus the intent. Um, and obviously, if the goal here is that executive actions can be largely um, not, I don't want to use the word overturned, but brought back for congressional oversight, it really comes back to a separation of powers argument for me. And this is an opportunity for Congress to say, this is an issue we want to deal with. Um, We want to address. Now, again, that can be used politically to say, this is an issue we want to sweep under the rug and pretend never happened. Um, But from the more positive spin, it's this is Congress saying that this is something that we actually want oversight for. Um, Now, again, I think a you know, a federal court case could happen in the future where we discuss the actual ramifications here as well. Yeah. To me, I certainly understand that the rationale of Congress, but to me, when Congress wants to you know, challenge something that an agency does, you know, there, there are lawsuits and there is changing the law, specific guidance, you know, in terms of legislation. And that requires not just majorities in both chambers, but the signature or veto override of the president. So I see this as something that should, in fact, be challenged and should be found to be unconstitutional. So, but I don't know if that'll actually happen. But if I were on the court, that's certainly how I would rule, I think. So, <laughs> and I'm sure Gorsuch is sweating this one out already, thinking yeah, no about the technicalities again. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, before we move on, I should mention uh, we're talking about the CFPB. There actually was another big story, uh, and I should, you know, give credit. Well, I don't know if I give credit exactly to Mick Mulvaney, who's the the current acting director of the CFPB, who's vowed to essentially, I wouldn't, well, he's 
before he vowed to destroy it. Now he just vows to make it as small and unobtrusive as possible, essentially. But this week, uh, the CFPB and the uh, Office of the Comptroller of Currency actually combined hit Wells Fargo with a $1 billion fine. Uh, now, this was something that had been in the works for quite a while. But uh, for those who think that the CFPB has gone completely dormant, while they've been essentially uninterested in starting much in the way of new actions, they are sort of finishing up some old business and Wells Fargo had been doing some seriously shady things and they entered into this agreement and uh, they're $1 billion poorer for it. And to me, this is exactly the sort of government regulation that is good and sensible that we need. And I say, yay, CFPB and boo Wells Fargo. And it's funny there because, I mean, even Trump came out um, when there were reports that he was going to cut the fine um, and try to use some executive action. And he basically said that I'm going to cut regulations, but if I catch you cheating on the regulations that are there, I'm going to make sure it hurts. Um, so, I mean, we're clearly seeing that, you know, there are definitely domestic sanctions to be to be paid by folks across the line. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, finally this week, I'm sure listeners are going, well, gee, when are they going to talk about Comey? Well, we're going to talk about Comey right now. You know, former FBI director James Comey is on a massive publicity tour to promote his book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, which is currently, uh, as of uh, this morning when I checked, the number one book on Amazon. And also to tell his, you know, which tells his side of the story regarding his firing by Donald Trump and everything that transpired there. Now, along with the book, Comey's memos of his meetings with President Trump have been released, revealing, well, I, I would say, uh, not really much that we didn't know. Certainly a president who uh, expected loyalty was obsessively focused on the Russia investigation. Uh, but, you know, I, there's obviously been a ton of media coverage about this. What do you make of all of it, Will? Like you just said, for me, there's nothing earth shattering here. I mean, it does show um, an element of consistency. But at the end of the day, as I read through the memos, as I read through the excerpts from the book, I'm still not seeing anything that suggests his investigation was actually obstructed in any way, um, which I think was what Democrats were maybe hoping to see. For Republicans, I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of them that are sitting there saying, called for the release of these memos, and now that they're out, this may have backfired a little bit because it does show that, that consistency at least. But again, it's consistency, but it's still very vanilla to me. Um, are there things in there that Trump said that Comey wrote down that are odd or just don't necessarily make sense and you can't follow the flow of the conversation? Sure. Um, but I wouldn't want somebody releasing transcripts of my conversations with them for much the same reason uh, at times where we kind of circle around before we get to a, to a final point. Um, so it's really just going to be that question for me on, you know, it, it the end of the day, is there is there really anything there? And coming back to your point earlier, I don't think there's anything in those memos that's going to be the the downfall of the president. Um, obviously, the the obsessive focus on an interaction with a stripper in Russia is is odd, um, but I don't see anything there that screams impeachment, resignation, the world is falling. Um, so it really does feel like this is something that on both sides, Comey is viewing this as self-important and riding it for everything he can get. And Republicans were focusing in on it, and I think now we've seen that you know there isn't anything there that would have... I don't think that their ire and their push to have these released ultimately paid dividends either. Yeah. yeah. To me, it would have been a very different story if it had been tapes, you know, but this is memos that were written down. And so I, I, it was odd to me that anyone expected 
much big to to come out of this. And, you know, sure, I, I guess I understand the media frenzy with, you know, Comey talking about Trump as like a mob boss or things like that or morally unfit. And all this focus, as the media often does on, you know, these clashing personalities. And is is Comey this sanctimonious kind of guy? Sure, he is. And, you know, and and that kind of thing. But in terms of the, the, the substance of it, there's just not a whole lot there. And again, this is such a frustrating thing to me because it's the kind of story that dominates coverage to the, you know, to the detriment of these other stories that, yeah, are a little more difficult to grasp, but make so much more of a real difference to, you know, millions of Americans uh, every day. Exactly. And that's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's for me, it's, this is, um, this is more a tabloid type story at the end of the day in terms of political significance. I mean, if anything, I think for, for Trump supporters, I mean, one of the things I did kind of think about as I looked at the memos was, you know, why was Comey feeling the need to take these types of notes? Why were we typing out every single detail? Um, so for the folks that view Trump as constantly under attack from the outside and the inside, I mean, I think this is only going to fuel the paranoia again. I mean, I hate drawing the parallels between Trump and Nixon, but I mean, in terms of, you know, thinking about they're out to get me. I mean, if you're a Trump supporter right now and you're looking at Comey's memos, why are you taking those notes if you're not hoping to use them against him at some point or if you're not thinking that there's going to be a need? So, I mean, there's that piece and that's just going to fuel more stories like this to keep coming out. Um, for Rosenstein, obviously, I mean, I think he's probably kind of sitting back in his chair at this point and saying, you wanted the memos, here they are. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, like you said, I think this allows much more meaningful, much harder to soundbite, much harder to put into a paragraph format stories to just kind of be forgotten and swept under the rug, which, you know, works for some people and doesn't work for others. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on that point you made about how you know, Trump supporters will certainly see this as, well, see that the, the deep state, the FBI, that these people are out to get the president. I, I certainly understand that view. And you can, you know, go to Breitbart or various other places any day of the week and see that view explained at great length. I think the other way of looking at it, and for being someone from the left, this is sort of how I look at it as well. Donald Trump was rightly seen as some somebody who has very little integrity, who one cannot trust, who lies in an unprecedented way. And, and personally, even if I agreed with him in terms of policy, given his penchant for uh, a self-aggrandizement, throwing other people under the bus and lying, I would be making some pretty detailed notes myself, not because I was out to get him, but simply out because I was out to protect myself and I was being cautious and careful. And I think that's the that's the way of seeing it, you know, maybe from maybe not just from the left, because it's not like, you know, Comey is some crazed liberal or something like that. Right. And a lot of these figures, we should point out, our Republican appointees are not at all liberals who have a history of wanting to destroy Republicans and quite the opposite. So I think this is much more of a Donald Trump thing than a I hate conservatives kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's definitely some some validity there. The question also becomes then, though, why a book tour, sure, why an Amazon yeah. bestseller versus keeping this in the political, it's about Donald Trump's side for Comey. Um, and I think that's where obviously it's going to be both pieces. Is he's obviously monetizing off of it at, at this point. 
Yeah, and to me, that's the kind of thing that I, I find personally disgusting, these these tell-all books, and especially when Comey is advertising himself as, you know, the, the last honest man, this man of great integrity and moral rectitude and all that, and yet he comes out with this salacious you know, book, this, you know, quickie kind of out to clearly, I think, do exactly, you know, which is, sure, there are some other motives there too, but I find this to be uh, very distasteful to say the least, and, you know, just kind of a sign of where politics more and more is going these days, which is very depressing to me, I guess. All right. I completely agree. <laughs> well, on that, on that depressing note, let's move on. It is time for what we're reading, where we step back from all this everyday crazy stuff and talk about the more in-depth, thoughtful things that we're either reading, listening to, or watching. Uh, Will, well, you want to start us off today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and really two different areas for me in the last week or so. Uh, in my current line of work, I, I work with a lot of colleges and universities. And uh, right now I'm working with about 50 plus historically black colleges and universities. And in February, um, there was a great documentary that Stanley Nelson and Marco Williams put out that was uh, Tell Them We're Rising, that looks at the the history of HBCUs in our country and their importance, um, and then looks at some of the current struggles they're facing, uh, especially for smaller ones in terms of shrinking endowments, enrollment issues, uh, difficulties in uh, being able to recruit and retain uh, strong minority students because you have non-HBCUs obviously pushing for the same student body. Um, so really just a great historical reflection on that. And it's also been self-admitted. National Geographic did a, a great piece um, looking at why HBCUs are enjoying um, kind of a, a rebirth. Um, and in that one, it really looks at some of the top performing HBCUs and their ability and what they're doing in terms of career outputs and what they're doing with funding from UNCF and some of these different groups. Um, and again, at the end of the day, it's just really showing some of the battles that small colleges and universities face in the country today, um, especially when they're looking at targeted populations. Um, and then on the other half for me, I'm rereading one of my favorite books, uh, Paradox of Choice, which was sociologist. Uh, Barry Schwartz and just, you know, with what's going on today in terms of um, opportunities to make decisions and the, the stress that too much choice is causing, it ties into not just the college and university side, but just our day-to-day piece. I mean, the, the stress of if you go to the grocery store not knowing what you already want to buy when you walk in um, and the debilitating effect it can have as you're trying to pick, you know, one of 38 jars of jelly. Um, and really just thinking again about media saturation, social media, all of the opportunities we have to make decisions from day to day. Um, just a, a good refresher and a book that I, I saw lying there that I hadn't read through in a while. That's just a, a quick read and really gets you thinking about all the choices you make all day, every day that are typically not things we actually focus on, but we're, we're still, we're still actually focusing on them, whether we know it or not. Absolutely. That uh, great book. And of course, we'll have links to, to uh, everything that we'll mention in the show notes. So my choice this week, I just finished uh, a fascinating book. I, uh, I read biographies actually uh, before bed. I kind of like the idea of a biography. It doesn't really require necessarily a whole lot of focus as maybe some fiction or some other kind of more in-depth stuff. And I've been kind of working through U.S. presidents, and I came across the biography uh, Hoover, An Extraordinary Life in Extraordinary Times by Kenneth White. Now, I thought I sort of 
knew the story of Herbert Hoover. I'd heard that he'd done some relief work in World War One, but you know, the main story is he was this stodgy conservative guy who basically was overwhelmed by the Great Depression and blown out of office by by FDR, who, you know, did all kinds of big great things and so forth. But it turns out that the the Herbert Hoover, the reality of Herbert Hoover was way different from the Herbert Hoover I thought I knew. In fact, there you know, Herbert Hoover was in ways kind of a strong progressive believer not, but also he was in also ways a super strong conservative. He combined these two things in, in a fascinating way where both parties for a long time sort of claimed him as as a as sort of someone they looked to. And uh, it was just a fascinating book. In fact, I liked it so much when I got done, I contacted the the author, Kenneth White, and said, you know, we maybe you can come on the show and talk about it. And we're in, in talks to sort of get get him on the show and talk about it. It's a great book and I highly recommend it. So again, it's Hoover and Extraordinary Life in Extraordinary Times. All right. Well, that does it for this show. Uh, Will, thank you so much for taking the time and, you know, coming and talking about the news this week with me. Absolutely. Glad to be here. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. And folks, remember, we really want to hear what you thought about the show, what you thought about uh, what you thought about Will. You know how to get in touch with us. It's uh, mail at politicsguys.com. You can also post on our Politics Guys Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And then if you just go to, uh, you know, politicsguys.com for the, for the link for the show, you can post there as well. So all kinds of ways to get in touch and let us know what you think. Good, bad, or indifferent, it's very valuable for us to get that input. So again, listener support, what keeps the show going, we do appreciate it. Just go to politicsguys.com slash support, and that would be great if you could help us out. You know, subscribing also helps, as does sharing episodes, and so you can share episodes really easily with the share function in whatever podcast app that you're listening to. Word of mouth is really our best advertising. We really do appreciate it. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.